0: Amen. We are uh, in a series this summer on persevering faith in troubled times. A walk through the book of Habakkuk. We'll do it in seven weeks, finish before the end of July ish. Uh, but we are still in chapter 1, verses 12 to 17. And uh, as I prepared these last couple messages, and particularly this week, I am convinced and convicted that the message of Habakkuk is the message of much of the Scripture and is an important message for us in this time and place, as it is in every age, as it was to Habakkuk 2,500 years ago, and as it is to us now, for God is the same yesterday and today and forever. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, God is sovereign, God is holy, and God is good. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and who cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea. Like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so he rejoices. And he is glad. And therefore he sacrifices to his net. And he makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Pray with me. Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning as your people. We've gathered to you to sit at your feet and to learn of you. And so, Father, our deep desire is that you would speak into our hearts and lives today. Tell us who you are. Help us to see You in all of Your glory, in Your sovereignty, in Your power, in Your goodness, in Your grace, even in the midst of a fallen, broken, and suffering world. Help us that we may bow the knee to You. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Everybody has seen a cross stitch or a tapestry of some kind. It has, you know, the upside and the backside. Um, and if you look at the backside, it's a confusing tangle of threads crisscrossing in every direction and seemingly random and full of, you know, a jumble of knots and, and random kind of strings. But when you turn a cross stitch over and look at the top, you see the pattern, right? You see the picture. You see the structure, the method, and the madness. And depending on which side you're looking at, depends on what you're able to. To see. And the grand picture of life, guess which side we're looking at? All right, it often seems like a crisscross of threads and going where and trying to make sense of them in this jumble of knots that is my life sometimes. And how does it all work together? It's sometimes hard for us to see and understand from this side. Until we get a glimpse of the other side, the upside. Sometimes trying to explain and understand God's side of the tapestry in light of the jumbled underside that you and I experience day to day that our world lives through and walks through can be complicated and difficult in in marrying these two things. How do we we understand how they work together? And theology is kind of like that. It runs a gamut, doesn't it? From, uh, From simple things like... Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, to trying to understand God's sovereignty and goodness in a fallen and broken world. And and that takes a little bit more work. And it's not unlike even, you know, not surprising, it's not unlike a lot of things in our life, whether it's mathematics goes everywhere from arithmetic, you know, adding and subtracting, all the way up to calculus three and and linear algebra and such things. And music is like that. I might be taught in this stage of my life to to plink out. Mary had a little lamb with a single finger. But there's Beethoven. And sometimes all I can do with Beethoven, which if you know anything about music, and I do not, apparently is very complicated, right? And it's very difficult to write and to understand. And all I can do is sit back and let it wash over me and appreciate the beauty and the power of it. And there's a certain amount I'll get, but I I believe if you know music, I bet you get a lot more. There's a lot that I will go right over my head in a Beethoven sonata. But it's still the beauty and the power of it that we can all appreciate at, at some level. We should not be surprised or put off as we try to understand and study the uncreated, sovereign deity that at times it would be complicated or difficult. Sometimes people think it shouldn't be that hard. Why not? Music is. Mathematics is. The Almighty Young created ruler governing a universe like this. Why would we think it would be a simple matter at all times? That we wouldn't struggle a little bit. And so that's what Habakkuk is doing. He is struggling for a faith, a resilient, enduring, and persevering faith. Faith in a broken and sinful and evil world as he wrestles with a God that he knows to be holy and righteous and good and sovereign and powerful and yet things are not the way they're supposed to be. Habakkuk's looking at the underside of the tapestry and he's having a hard time understanding and he's wrestling with God in prayer. He has gone to God. He hasn't run from Him in his pain. He has gone to God and he's wrestling with God in the midst of it. Remember in verses 1 to 4, if you were here last week, in verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk comes and he laments to God about the moral and spiritual decline that is taking place in Israel ever since the death of King Josiah. Some of us would do that about the state of the church as, as America takes its moral and spiritual slide in the state of things in America or the state of things in the church. And, and he brings his lament to God and says, are "You when are you going to do something? And he's thinking, God, bring a revival. Isn't that what people are praying for in America? Rising up, banding together, praying for revival, that he would do those things again. And in verses 5 to 11, God answers him. He says, I'm not going to do what you're hoping and he announces the Babylonian exile, seventy years in captivity under a brutal people. He says, "I'm raising up the Chaldeans as a judgment and a discipline," and it's absolutely devastating news. It's devastating news. It's hard to grasp it unless you've seen like the movie Red Dawn, the old one. It was the uh, the Russians, and in the new one, it's the North Koreans. Maybe it was more likely when they made it. But it's that you know, America, basically, if God were to announce we're praying for a revival, and he says, I'm raising up the North Koreans, and it's going to be red dawn. You can check it out. It's a, they, they, they conquer America, and, you know, and so it's the, you know, the, 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 the resistance is... Uh, okay, so it's devastating news. It is not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. And so this morning's text, this is Habakkuk's response to the disappointing news. As he wrestles with the revelation, as he's longing for revival and God is bringing judgment, and he is wrestling with that news, he responds to God in this text. He doesn't understand God, but he trusts Him. And instead of raising his fist, which we so often do when we get news and things don't go the way we want them to, and and instead of bringing relief as we prayed for, there's suffering, and sometimes we raise our fist. And instead of raising the fist, Habakkuk bows the knee. And like Jacob before him, he wrestles with God, trying to understand and to receive the blessing. And the immediate response That Habakkuk gives is to acknowledge and praise God as God. Right? We see it in verse 12. He says, are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. You, O Lord, have ordained them as a judgment. You have established them. Right? He reaches up and he speaks of God's eternity and God's holiness and even his mercy, we shall not die. And his sovereignty, you have ordained them, his eternity and his holiness and his sovereignty. And so he responds to God as God. Whatever the news is, whatever it is that's unfolding in history, whatever it is I'm going to have to deal with personally, he bows the knee and whatever else is going on, he's God. Right? This is... This is clear in Habakkuk's faith and in his heart. And he he worships in this devastating news You are the Lord. Are you not from everlasting? the eternal and self-existing God, the God who existed long before I was born and will exist long after I'm gone, you who were the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and continue to be God and who will be the God of my children and the, and the generations <clears throat> to come and the, the God of Messiah who's coming, you are from everlasting. You know, you are the God of the big picture. You are the God who reigns over the circle of the earth and over time from beginning to the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Are you not from everlasting? holy one thrice holy God righteous in all your deeds he knows this he knows that God is thrice holy and he stands on this knowledge like a rock right he gets this devastating news it might drop him to his knees but his knees land on a rock he is holy this I know for the Bible tells me so he is sovereign and he is good he lands on his knees but it also adds to his confusion. He is holy. And he's not just holy, right? He notices it. He says, my holy one. My holy one. My God. Even in my pain. We are in covenant. You are my God and I am your people. Your person. And Whatever happens it is, you are my holy one. And so again, he doesn't get angry or withdraw. He clings to God in faith. He doesn't get it. He doesn't like it. It's going to be ugly for decades. But he clings to God. He knows God. He trusts God. But he wrestles with God, right? And we're going to do that. Because this is hard. This is a hard word. This is a hard thing. This is not easy. You can talk about the theology of it up here, but it's hard living it. You know that because you've lived things like it. But then there is the confession. It's almost strange as it stands there. Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. He's not denying what God just said. He's not saying it's not going to happen. It's going to happen. God said it. But he's saying we shall not die. In other words, we are in covenant. And God loves, has given his covenantal, everlasting love upon his faithful people and whatever these 70 years of exile and and captivity will bring, whatever judgment, whatever hardship it is, whatever discipline God does, we will not die because we are his people and he has made us promises and we will live. We will live because he lives, right? And this is our promises as a people, no matter what this life may bring, then we're with him. Forever and ever. When we are His people, whatever light and momentary trials, sufferings that we experience in this life, in the end is revealed a glory that far outweighs them all. So He emphasizes, again, God's holiness. Verse 13. You are of purer eyes than to see evil. I know who you are. You are light and in you is no darkness at all. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. I, I know this. You cannot look it wrong. And so help me. Help me as I wrestle with, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallow up men more righteous than themselves? How can you let the evil win? How can it go down like this, knowing who you are? And Then he compares... Israelites and, and all peoples in the Babylonian path to fish, right? In 14, you make mankind like fish of the sea, crawling things that have no ruler. He, he brings them all up, the Babylonians. He brings them up with a hook. He drags them in with a net. He gathers them with a dragnet, right? The hook gets one. The, the net you might throw gets a few, but the dragnet between the two boats gathers up the whole you know, the whole school of fish. And he says they come and, and they're they're... Reaping every nation that is before them. Therefore, he sacrifices to his nets. He's a pagan. He worships his own might. He thinks his might makes him right. And he worships his own power and himself. He doesn't even worship you. How can you let them win? How can you let them do this? And that's where 17 ends. Is he then going to keep on emptying his net? and mercilessly killing nations forever how long o oh lord how long will this go on how can my sovereign and holy god who cannot tolerate evil how long will you tolerate evil match the tension of beethoven as you did into the depths of understanding how a sovereign god rules a world that is broken and sinful And and judgment is being reserved. He is being patient and allows and permits evil to exist, the devil to roam free, his enemies to prosper at some time. And he waits patiently for the day is set. The day will come and it will come. But in the meantime, he permits these things. But in permitting them, we need to understand he is God and he is sovereign even now. And so I want to focus on the fact that Habakkuk doesn't dodge what God says, which is so often what people do today. If you don't like what God is saying, you simply say he can't mean that. He must mean something else, right? Surely if you look at the this and the that, and surely if you give whatever, and in the modern and then, you know, surely he's not saying five and six. I'm doing a work that you wouldn't believe. I am raising up me. I am raising up the Babylonians. I am the sovereign one, the holy one who doesn't tolerate evil. And so here comes that, that tension as you look at the underside of the tapestry. <clears throat> and what, what Habakkuk does is he, he bows himself to his knees, he submits his mind and his heart to the knowledge of God's sovereignty. And what God has said in verses 5 and 6 has become his theology, right? And that's how it works. What the scripture says, we believe that the Bible is the final and the only rule of all faith in life, what we believe and how we live, right? Our morality and our lifestyle and our, and our understanding of life, all our faith in life. And so if God has said it, then it becomes our theology, Right? We believe what we believe, not because we like it or we made it up. We believe it because it's what the scripture teaches, as God's word. And so here Habakkuk has gotten God's word. I am doing a work. I am raising up the Chaldeans. And so that we see in verse 12, that becomes his theology. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them. Oh, Lord, you have ordained them. It's my theology. That's where I stand. You have established them. All right, now I get it. Right, I get it that you're the Holy One. I get it you're my Holy One. I get it that you're sovereign. And I get it that you ordain them. But I don't get how it works together. I can't bring it together. The tension of his holiness. His hatred of sin. And his sovereign ordination of all things. So let's think about the question of how God raises up the Chaldeans, how he raises up the Babylonians, and what it means to ordain them. You have ordained them. You have established them. All right, what does it mean to ordain? And I'm going to give you this definition, and I believe it's, it's a good one for the way the word is used here, and you can use it in different ways. But the word as it's used here means this, to make certain that something will happen, All right? To ordain it. Is to make certain that it will happen. So if it's been ordained. It has become certain that it will take place. Right, now the thing is that it can be ordained in more ways than one. Right, you can ordain something to happen by actually doing it. Right, he wove you together in your mother's womb. Right, he parted the Red Seas. Right? He he can actively he can ordain something by actively doing it, but he can also ordain it by act, by by not acting, by letting other wills and people have the consequences of their own actions, free moral agents, and he can he can ordain things by both acting and then by by not acting, and ordering things in such a way around these actions. And what we want to say then is that, excuse me, that God orders, that He governs the circumstances of life to make certain that things happen the way that they do. Right? God orders and governs the circumstances of life in such a way that He ordains that things happen the way that they do. I know this is where it starts to get a little fuzzy. He orders all things, good and evil. In other words, that he doesn't order good things. And the bad things, well, they just have their way, right? They're just out of control, right? This is still God's world. And he orders all things, good and evil, without causing evil. It's where he steps back and he can bound and he works because he governs and he is able to rule over and act and Step back as he needs to, to weave the warp and woof of the tapestry so that all things go the way he wants them to. Here's how it is said, and you can throw it up, in the Westminster Confession. All right, so work with me here. God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, every living thing, all actions, and all things. From the greatest thing to the least, to the atom, with an almighty power, with an unsearchable wisdom, with a, an infinite goodness, he manifests himself in his providence. Not by a bare permission, there is a permission in that he lets evil exist and he lets evil do things at times, but it's not a bare permission what is it connected to? But such as has joined to it a wise and powerful bounding of it, an ordering of it, a governing of it, and a manifest dispensation to His own holy ends. Right? Are you still with me? Right? He is bounding it. He is. Ordering and disposing it, he is working, he digs a channel and so it flows that way. You know, and he puts up a wall here and it goes that way. And he, and he orders and he works and he governs all things good and evil so that it all works toward his ultimate end. Such that though, yet so as the sinfulness thereof proceeds only from the creature, not from God. Being most holy and righteous, neither is he nor can he be the author or even the approver of sin. He rules his universe. The wicked as well as the righteous. He rules it. He governs it. He orders it. He disposes it to his own purpose. Never authoring sin and never approving it. And the day will come when he will judge it. Let me give you an example of this, and there are tons in the Bible, and I've only got 30 minutes, and we're doing communion, and so here we go. Let me just throw some things at you. I want to bring like 10 examples because you see it all through Scripture, right? You see it in the life of Joseph. Do you not in the providence of his selling into slavery? The Bible tells us his brothers intended evil, right? They hated him. They were jealous of him, and they, they did a bad thing, and they meant to. And they did it as free moral agents because they wanted to. In their wickedness, they took their brother. At first, they threw him in a pit, and then they sold him into slavery. So off to a foreign land, they set in motion a set of events in poor Joseph's life. Where he ends up in a life of servitude. And then he's falsely accused. And then he ends up in prison. And he's languishing in prison. Then he's forgotten, even by the few friends he ever made in the world, as he languishes in prison. Genesis 5020. As for you, brothers, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. He meant what? What did they mean for evil? What did they, what was their part in the story? They sold them into slavery. Wicked, evil thing. We, slavery is a, is a plague on the earth. It is wicked, and we rebuke it and 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 in, in every form and fashion. And you, they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. The same action, the evil actions of evil men, God had a meaning in it. He bounded it, ordered it, directed it, disposed it such that he would bring about that many people should be kept alive. That in the same event, he, they meant it and God meant it. It's their sin, but God governs and orders it. For his purposes, such that in Genesis 45, he actually says, God sent me before you to preserve a posterity on the earth. God sent me. When my brothers sold me into slavery, God was sending me. And the whole order of events that come from that, God is ordering and disposing them such that he lands in a certain house and ends up in prison with the cupbearer to the king. You know, ordering and bounding. And how does he end up when? And the timing of that and, and the relationship and the forgetting and then the remembering and then what? And then he is where he needs to be for such a time as this. The deliverance of his people from slavery. God sent me. So There is these evil will, you see, that God's purpose overruled his brothers. He ordered and he arranged the events with a hidden and mysterious wisdom. So that all things serve his purposes. There is nothing that is out of his control and does not ultimately, as he wanted to, serve his purposes. Such that all things are ordained. And it will end where it's supposed to end. In the way that it's supposed to. Think again of the cross stitch and the jumble of threads and knots that was Joseph's life until you turn it over and God sent him. God sent him by digging a channel for their brother's sins to run in so that it ultimately ended for the glory of God and the salvation of his people. So let me just give you a few things to hang your hat on. The everlasting, holy, sovereign goodness of God has ordained whatever happens to us. This, is, this seems to be, as you read the scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the truth that God tries to communicate to his people. I am the Lord of your life. And there is nothing that comes into your life that hasn't first sifted through my fingers, been ordered and ordained in such a way. Right? God governs and orders A world full of sin and evil so that it falls out the way that he wants it to. Romans 8.28, we quote it all the time. Sometimes we don't take into the full meaning of what God is saying. We know that for those who love God, all things are working together. All things. Even the evil actions of evil men like Joseph's brother are working together for the good of Joseph and ultimately God's people. All things are being worked together. The Lord is sovereign over all things. Ephesians 1 tells us that He does all things according to the purpose of His own will. It's one of the the rawest statements of God's sovereignty in Scripture. Ephesians 1.11 He does all things according to the purpose of His own will. Governing this fallen age. All things. But in such a way, and remember... That God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. As He ushers things through time and as He governs what evil people even are doing, God is without sin. He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. James chapter 1, James says this, Let no one say, When you are tempted, tempted by suffering, tempted by the confusion of the events of your world, tempted by sin, tempted by whatever it is you're tempted by that would cause you to doubt or cause you to blaspheme or cause you to raise your fist or cause you to do whatever, let no one say when he's being tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. Let no one say it. Right? And Habakkuk is careful not to say it. He's wrestling with the implications that God is my holy one. And he doesn't tolerate evil, but how is it? How long are you going to tolerate this evil? How long are you going to patiently wait? Sovereignty of the everlasting one, ruling over evil, ordaining his purposes, is most clearly seen in Jesus, is it not? In so many ways, it's the culmination of history and theology and everything. And we see it in the life of Jesus, what we're talking about, Acts 2:23. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men, Lawless men, wicked men, they crucified him, they killed him, but he was according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge. The bounding and ordering of all things that it arrived in the person, in the life of Jesus, when it did, where it did, how it did, his life, his birth, his family, who he was under, the Roman occupation, Pilate, Herod, the whole business, ordered, bounded in such a way, right? That that they were the ones who crucified and killed him according to their own sinfulness and hatred of all things good that they tasted in Jesus and they killed him. But God planned it and ordained that it should be so. Acts 4, 27 and 28, truly this city, Jerusalem, where we're gathered against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, where Herod, the king of the Jews, Pilate, the Lord of the Gentiles, along with the Gentiles and the people of the Jews, all of them together, they were banded together to do what? Whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. We see in the suffering of the Lord Jesus the sovereignty of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the purpose and the plan and the direction of God and the wonder and astonishment of Habakkuk, I'm going to do something in your day. Wonder and be astounded. We see the same wonder and astonishment in that God would enter into our suffering that he would share our suffering, that he would actually become our substitute in our ultimate suffering and bear the weight of our sin in his own body on the cross according to God's plan and foreknowledge and definite ordaining of these things to be for us and for our salvation. Oh, that we would stop shaking our fist and start bowing the knee, that we would put our faith first in Christ, Who is God among us. God with us. Sharing our suffering and suffering in our place. And then ultimately His Father in whom all things are being worked out according to His plan. Piper says that when a person settles it biblically and intellectually and emotionally. That God has ultimate control of all things including evil. That this gracious and precious thing that would be beyond Words would marvelously bring a stability and a depth into our lives and help us to develop a God entranced view of the world, a world that is saturated by His power and His lordship and His rule, that He is with us, that He is for us, that He is not against us. God is God, and He is still on the throne. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you that you speak to us and you tell us the truth. Even thousands of years ago, you have spoken into our suffering and pain and you told us who you are and you told us how you are working. Father, help us to put down our fists, to drop down onto our knees and to embrace the God who has loved us in Christ. That we would cling to you trust you, worship you, and ultimately spend an eternity with you. For we ask and pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.